six days of metta. That's where we are, six full days of metta. And also a sense of how we begin to bring our metta into our interactions and in a broad sense into the world. And it has its own challenges, doesn't it? You may have noticed just from talking for an hour, an hour and a half, or two hours. Both uh, beautiful connections, I imagine, but also noticing patterns that used to be there and show their faces. (laughs) And so this evening I want to talk uh, about that theme of bringing metta, as it were, out into the world. Not so much in terms of metta in daily life, Mark will talk about that tomorrow morning, but more about the way that our metta practice is both a deep practice of metta for self and the way that that gets then extended into uh, metta for the world. So I called my talk uh, Metta for Self, Metta for the World. You know, when there's a way in which, even though we've been here, in a sense, uh, separate from the world, um, the world's come in here, hasn't it? We internalize the world, and the world's here. I remember reading the um, manual for novices at the Abbey of Gethsemane, you know, where Thomas Merton was when I, when I used to visit the monastery in Kentucky. And, it, and the manual for novices said, don't think that you've escaped the world. You have brought it in pretty fully, and it is in you, and you will find it here. So don't think that you've sort of escaped, that you've somehow escaped. And we've, we've seen the world in a certain way, but we also have this uh, protected environment that we can really uh, cultivate certain qualities. We can really uh, simplify our lives here for the sake of training. We can simplify and focus. We can cultivate that sense of um, appropriate response. What is the appropriate response of my heart moment to moment? We cultivate that here, and that's really can stay the core practice of bringing metta out into the world. So in a sense, it's simple. It's just returning to that question. What's the appropriate response of my heart? And actually, as much as we can remember that question, we've done 80% of the work. Because always the hardest part of practice, as it were, in the world, probably here too, is to remember to practice. Practice is sometimes difficult, but the heart, it's much harder to remember to practice. And so if, as much as we can just remember and even ask that question, what's the appropriate response? We've gone a long way, and we actually are pretty near to uh, getting a good response. I thought I'd start with a few 
um, reflections on the nature of metta from a number of deep thinkers. And the first deep thinkers are all age four to eight. And they're, or I think they were. That's, this is one of those internet things, you know. And it says they're four to eight. <laughs> it says they're four to eight, but who knows if this was some, you know, 43-year-old computer technician at 3 a.m. in Schenectady, New York, just, say, you know, imagining 48-year-olds. Who knows? I don't know. But, it, but this sounds like 48-year-olds rather than 43-year-old computer technicians. So this is the nature of metta, and this was asked in terms of what does, uh, let's see, what is it? What does love mean? Karen, age seven. When you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. <laughs> Marianne, age four. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. And this is Billy, age four. When someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. <laughs> Maybe we should end here. <laughs> Those three statements are probably, are probably enough, but as they say, for the sake of the evening, I'll go on. <laughs> so the second, the second uh, group were, is, is from uh, Martin Luther King, and he saw love, as to many people, as a force in the world, not just something that is nice for private times or internal cultivation, but he actually saw it as a force that can transform the world. And it's the same way with, uh, with Gandhi. And the, the, the very term nonviolence in the Indian tradition uh, really carries uh, much more positive connotations than it does in English. That when, when the, that word, which originally, as many of you know, in India was ahimsa, when that uh, word uh, in the Indian context uh, really suggest the quality of love and care. And when people say that word, there's a lot more positive. When we say nonviolence, we just think not being violent. And so it really, the sense of love becoming a force in the world is an old tradition. And it's there, it's there with Gandhi, it's there with the ancient uh, traditions of India, it's there with many traditions. It's there when the Buddha says, hatred ever, never ends with hatred. Hatred only ends with love. This is an ancient tradition, he says. And so that's really our, our challenge, is how to, how to let our, the, as it were, the horizon of our practice continue to get bigger, following our own rhythms. And for some of us, our own rhythms mean that we mostly focus on ourselves. And that's just fine to do for a long time, as long as it's necessary. And for others of us, we, we can start bringing our sense of metta out into our relationships, our families, our work, 
our communities, and our attempts to uh, help respond to the suffering of the world. This is what King said. He said, I have decided to love that sense of intention that we work with. He said, I have decided to love. He says, love has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of humanity. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I am speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. This Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist belief about ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of St. John. Let us love one another, for love is God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. I was almost feeling the cadences of King come through me as I was reading that. It was, you know, maybe, maybe that resonated to hear, the, hear those words. And so what I want to explore really are three things. It's first to, uh, first to talk about how love of self, metta towards self, is the foundation, really, of everything. Then I want to explore how that metta towards self, the love of self, connects with bringing metta out into the world. And then I I last want to talk about how this takes a lot of courage. (laughs) So those, those are the three things. There's a powerful passage from a 8th century Buddhist teacher and writer named Shantideva. Many of you know Shantideva's work. He wrote the famous text, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And he said this about um, the relationship between self and world. He said this entire world is disturbed with insanity due to to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. This entire world is disturbed with insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. So really seeing this connection between knowing ourselves and in some sense very much connected with metta towards self that when we're confused about ourselves, it's very hard really to help ourselves or others. And so this is really that spirit that we've been trying to encourage, that spirit of connecting the metta with the mindfulness, to know ourselves and to know ourselves, as it were, with warmth. That we, and when we come, I think, to a certain level of knowing ourselves and kindness to ourselves, then we start to become able to, I think, really be helpful to others. We don't have to, as it were, be perfect in order to help others. If that was the case, um, if that was the case, we wouldn't have a retreat. <laughs> and we wouldn't be up here <laughs> or anything. So uh, 
And, and so rather, it's in a way, many of you know that famous phrase, the wounded healer, that we, that we work to heal ourselves. And maybe at a certain point, there still can be wounds, but we've healed ourselves enough so we can actually be of use to others. One of the uh, passages, which really uh, from the Buddha actually, which has really touched me about the relationship of metta to self to metta to world, was pointed out to me, I think about five years ago, by my colleague Guy Armstrong, who teaches here also, and teaches metta retreats in, in the summer. He used to teach them in the winter. That's how I heard this, because we were just sitting around. And he, he mentioned this passage, which is from the Buddha, quoted by Buddha Gosa, the uh, 5th century sort of systematizer of uh, Buddhist thought at that time. And he, he quoted, he, had a whole, he has a whole long section on metta. And the references are in the sheet, which uh, was left out on the table for resources for metta. This is what he said. This is what the Buddha said. I visited all quarters with my mind, nor found I any dearer than myself. Self is likewise to every other dear. Who loves oneself will never harm another. I visited all quarters with my mind, nor found I any dearer than myself. Self is likewise to every other dear. Who loves oneself will never harm another. And it's particularly that last line that kind of electrified me when I heard that, that someone who has really fully come to peace with oneself is safe. That's what Billy was talking about (laughs) with his phrase about the words being safe in one's mouth. That when that when there's that sense of love, there's some kind of healing also, mysteriously maybe, of the tendencies to to hurt, the hatred, the, the acting out, the reactivity. And I thought this was a very, to me, this was extremely profound because it told me a lot of things. It told me that love of self is crucial to spiritual life. And it told me that love of self and love of others are connected. That really to be able to love others, we need, in some sense, to love ourselves. Again, all of us being works in progress. And that's something, actually, really, uh, with my own background of work with Buddhist Peace Fellowship, really sparked me, because it made me think that what I just said is true, but it's also true that harming others may come out of a lack of self-love that the roots of violence may be in a, in some sense, in a lack of metta. It's not how we usually think. We usually think, or, or that some major roots of that are in a lack of self-love that causes us to act out, that causes us to be able to hurt others. And further, that it might be possible if we want to respond to suffering. One of the main ways would be to cultivate self-love, not the only way, but really crucial. 
And it's actually something that if you know the work of King or Malcolm X or other people working to transform things, they they often, particularly in people who've been oppressed, stress self-love as a starting point. That, so, so, and I'll, I'll come back to this, but it's really suggesting to me something radical, that bringing metta out into the world is not just being nice. It's not just kind of like a nice touch of way of being friendly, but it actually goes to the roots, to many of the roots of suffering. And that's, that's um, to me, suggests a lot of need for uh, creativity and ways of bringing that into our world in many ways. And yet for us to cultivate uh, love of self is hard. To cultivate metta towards self is hard. And we've been all um, exploring that in many ways. You know, for many of us, we've been facing some of our own uh, difficulties, some of our own demons, we might say. Really being with them learning to be friendly with them. I think it was, uh, I think it was Heather who talked about the way that, where's Heather? <laughs> I think Heather talked about the way that uh, our, uh, in, the, in the fairy tales, the dragons have to be loved and then they turn into princes and princesses. You know, and I actually have um, in my, own practice, I take certain vows, um, typically four times a day. I just say certain vows to myself very briefly. They're like my intention vows, and some of them have to do with demons. And I'll, I'll share this with you, because it, it might be interesting for you, because it's really metta is an intention practice, and just coming back to our intentions can be really helpful. So, so I say, when I sit up here, before I do metta, uh, kind of before breakfast, the morning, the afternoon, and the evening, kind of four blocks of practice. I say, for each of those blocks, I say, I intend to awaken for the benefit of others. Then I do kind of gratitude practice for a few minutes, which is basically just reflecting on what I'm grateful for, which is very helpful. And then, then I say my vows, and they are, see if I can remember them, it's kind of like the metaphrases. I say them so much that sometimes if I just say, what should I say, I don't remember them. It's like, it's like those meta muddles. So let's see if they come. If not, they'll come later. Um, may I have peace and serenity in the midst of samsara. May my demons and dragons become allies and helpers. That's what made me remember it. (laughs) May my demons and dragons become allies and helpers. May I fully integrate the shadow and light in my body and being. May I be a conduit for the Dharma to manifest on this earth. May joy and compassion always be with me. And after I say that, always it feels like that other one by, who was it, by Karen. Like feels like my eyes, every, something in me just goes, <laughs> starts sparking, you know. 
And so, um, but the reality is that we have to, you know, in our uh, work with self-love, it happens in different ways. It, and some of it happens by being with our difficulties and even our demons. Um, there's, there's a beautiful way of saying this that the Zen teacher John Terence said that talked about the importance of facing our own difficulties. He said, the courage with which we bear our own darkness frees others from having to carry it for us. The courage with which we bear our own darkness frees others from having to carry it for us. And yet that's hard. We have certain, we have certain internal factors. We have a lot of, you know, one of the main forces that, that many of us find is the force of judgments, of self-judgments. It can be extremely harsh. And judgments have been a really big part of my own personal practice. Some of you know this because uh, they've become so much a part of my practice that I wanted to offer a day long, which I did, I think, for the first time about four years ago, on working with judgments and share some of what I had found. Um, and afterwards, I thought it was a good day long and you know, ready to go home. And people gathered around and said, we want more. <laughs> we want to do some more work. And out of that actually has come a group which has met monthly for about three and a half years. Uh, not everyone doesn't stay three and a half years, but some people stay as much as two years. And it's monthly. And it's been pretty amazing to work with people. For myself, I think I, um, I think the judgment, the self-judgments of a harsh nature have been there. And at a certain point in my practice, I think I had been noticing them and naming them and using the kind of tools that we use, mindfulness and really noticing. At a certain point in my practice, it became really important to face them more directly. And so I worked over a period of time using mindfulness and using different tools that really had me uh, be more present with them, to see them more clearly, and to, in a way, um, go more deeply into what was behind the judgments. You know, what I found after looking at judgments, particularly uh, doing some very intensive work in a, in a two-month retreat, what I came to find was that my harsh self-judgments, and they were related to judgments of others, <laughs> as you know, that that the, the judgments were actually, um, in my own experience, they were in a way, they, were, they, had, they brought some pain and some difficulty in themselves, but in a way they were defense mechanisms to come, cover over a deeper pain which I didn't want to face. In other words, they, were, they covered over unacknowledged pain. And so part of the work with judgments, which is hard for us, is to somehow... <clears throat> face that pain, you know, which, which could be the pain of certain views of ourselves. It could be the pain that we've internalized from others. You know, there's a lot, you know, it could come from family. A lot of the judgments that we have may come from society. You know, we were talking at breakfast this morning very, in a very interesting conversation about how just in meeting someone for the first time, the kind of questions we ask each other almost like summon all the social judgments. You know, if we ask, what do you do? Right? It has a certain implication that if you do certain things, 
uh, it's good. And if your answer is, I'm unemployed right now, one can feel the weight of the social judgment can be internalized like that. In other words, we tend to internalize the projections that come from the society. It's very obvious in terms of issues of race and gender, you know, where we internalize the projections that are out there, you know, um, for groups that are targeted. And part of the practice is to really both reveal that and transform it. And so for my work, my, my own practice, or go back to that discussion this morning, we were just looking at that, it's like just to, just to, for example, for a single person to go out to a restaurant at night raises the social judgments that come right at one. And they can, they can go in if we, you know, if we let them. And we tend to actually be not so conscious about it. You know, or could be a judgment like what um, um, people meeting each other. Are you married? Do you have children? We were talking about these. And the social assumption might be that if you say yes, it's really good. And if you say no, there might be a problem. And so we carry all of that, don't we? We carry what we've internalized. And part of our practice is emptying it out. So I think I want to really say that the, the internal demons we work with are not just our personal stuff. And that's kind of important because we can judge ourselves for having all these judgments. In our, in our monthly group, we call those stealth judgments. They're the judgments about there being too many judgments. And so that's part of our work, you know, and it's very, it's a very powerful work. And what I found in doing the work with judgments was that actually the judgments, in a sense, uh, weren't so much the problem because if I actually could go beneath them and touch the pain, and in our practice, we often touch that in very small amounts at a time. You know, and there are ways, sometimes we touch it in a big way, but a lot of my, pra- my own practice was touching it just over and over for small amounts of time, just to c- come back again and again using mindfulness practice. And what I found over time was that when I could actually be present with the pain, there tended to be healing over time. This is one of the ways that healing occurs, you know, a kind of kind presence to pain over time and with sufficient support can be healing. What I also found though was that just being mindful of the pain or of the difficulties or of the judgment is not enough. And with the people in the group, we typically find that both mindfulness and metta are necessary. And sometimes we have to go mostly with metta. And it can sometimes be joy. It's really to activate the beautiful, you know, the sense of ourselves as beautiful, the sense of ourselves as brilliant, as amazing. And we, some, we do that, I think, over time with metta, or also we find, find, I have found that using joy and just basically hanging out in joy and or metta is really, really crucial because sometimes it's too much to go into the difficult stuff. And so what I found with people is that both are necessary. And if we just do mindfulness, we can get out of balance. And we need the metta. And if we just do metta, we may be in a beautiful place, but we don't necessarily heal. 
We don't necessarily work with that, with that difficult energy. And <clears throat> what, I, what I found is that uh, over time, there was some, some very amazing work that could happen. And, and actually that the judgments in themselves often could carry some intelligence and some good energy, but they got mixed up with reactivity because of not wanting to be with the pain, if you're, if you're following me. Is that, is that making some sense? That, that um, you know, so an example that I, that from the last few days, someone could be really judgmental and say, your metta is really dry. You're not a loving person. In other words, noticing, noticing your, the metta is dry and going then to the, having that be the hook that takes one into this really strong judgment. You're not a loving person. And many of us know that, that we can go there and just stay there and be hooked by that. And it's possible to see that the actual judgment, your metta is dry, could actually be an insight that if there wasn't that reactivity, we could actually say, oh, it may be a little bit dry. Let, let me have metta invite more juice, you see. So it could actually be taken, so we could take that energy, which is leading to the judge. And what I found over time is that people are able to take, to not see the judgment so much as the enemy. That would actually be judging the judge. But to actually see it as potentially like the demon that becomes the ally. And so this is, this is a, a powerful work. We can do that. So we can say in the instance I gave, may I, can I really, uh, let's invite some joy into my metta. Let's invite that in the spirit of metta. And we can actually use some of the insight for the sake of uh, developing the metta more. What I found after doing that practice personally for, for several years was that by my, many of my judgments tended to dry up. And there was some, it was by, by continually just developing those two forces, the mindfulness, sometimes going into the difficulties and sometimes being present with them. And, uh, and then being with the metta. And near the end of my really intensive work with that, I had a dream in which I saw a poster of myself on the wall in the kind of Western model of wanted, dead, or alive. <laughs> wanted, dead, or alive, Donald. <laughs> you know? And it was, it was in the dream, and I looked at that, and I said, it's time to take that poster off the wall. And I woke up, and I said, hmm, that is a transparent dream. <laughs> you know, I, know, I know what that means. And so these, these judgments are very deep. You know, there's um, my good friend, uh, Diana Winston, who also teaches here. She tells the story, she told me the story of working with a group of, um, uh, with a program that I've also been connected with called the BASE program, which stands for Buddhist Alliance for Social Engagement, which has been going, which Diana founded in 1995, and I've been connected with it since then. And there was a base group um, 
for young people, which I think at least one person from this retreat was on. No names. And, and during, that, uh, during that program, uh, you know, she was the facilitator and mentor. And it was mostly, of course, for the people in the group. But one evening, she just said, I'm working too hard. And I'm really getting stressed and burned out. And she said, um, and she said um, I just ha I, I can't take a break. I think I, I, um, I can't really, I don't think I'm doing enough. I just have to keep on doing things. And some of you know that kind of judgment. Like I'm, if, I'm, if I take care of myself, I get judgmental towards myself. And she was facing that, you know, which is very common for people who help others. And... And so the, the, the group of people took over, and they told her, we're going to say certain things, and, we want, and, and we're gonna, uh, or we want you to say something that is more the positive statement that's different from the judgment. The judgment says, I am not working enough. I have to keep working. And so they had her say the opposite. She said, I am working hard enough. And the group would say, yes, yes, yes. And they would shout out, yes. You know, 10 people shouting it out. Or she said, I am doing enough for the world. Yes. <laughs> or it's okay for me to take care of myself. Yes. And, and the world will not go to pieces if I sometimes have fun. <laughs> and yes. And they did this. And Diana told me that not only did they do it that evening, but after, uh, after that, they would sometimes come by and leave little post-its on her window at her home saying, <laughs> you are doing enough. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, so that, that metta towards self is, is a big one, really. It's, it's, a, it's a powerful, it's powerful work that we do. And what, what is also amazing is how, as we develop that metta towards self, we gradually be, become able to take it out further into the world. We become able to, to help people. And you know the metta practice really follows that sequence. We start with metta to self. We move towards metta to benefactor. We start moving gradually towards uh, people for whom metta is easy. And then we cross that line with the metta, where we start bringing metta towards neutral people, and then beyond that to difficult people, and then to all beings. And it's that bringing it out that starts to become very profound, especially when it becomes like the attitude with which we, with, with, which, with which we meet people. And it's actually pretty radical to have that stance of metta. You know, what does the world do? Most, there is a lot of love in the world, but it's mostly contained within certain narrow circles. And we keep the love and we don't give it outward. We think, I will just give love to my family and friends. You know? And while that has its beautiful aspects, that kind of limiting of love is also partly the basis for war and violence. You know, so there's something that's, again, I think this was what King was talking about, this bringing of love on a on a larger scale, and more out into our world is really crucial. You know, one thing that's been very haunting for me is having seen home movies of the um, uh, commandants of the Nazi concentration camps, home movies of their home life. 
were these people who were participating in, you know, almost unspeakable atrocities. At home, they show these very, you know, some of these home movies show these people very loving towards their family, their children, their dogs, you know, and that can coexist. That's kind of the extreme example of what happens when love gets boundaried. You know, and our practice is to work to go beyond that boundary, you know, to bring that boundless heart that the Metta Sutta talks about. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. And it becomes the basis, as we do that more, it becomes the basis can be more and more for our action in the world. Like that question that I, that I gave a few days ago from Julia Butterfly Hill, who says, are my actions coming out of love? It can, as we do metta more, it can become the motivation. It become, can, can become more at the center of our being. So this is both uh, a direction but it's also something we can keep on practicing, can keep on trying to bring ourselves back to that spirit of metta. A friend of mine named uh, Temple Smith, who is part of the teacher training group, along with Anushka, um, did a long period of metta, and he, um, he talked about what the changes were that happened from doing a, a practice period of metta. He said he had been a um, person who had been an activist and someone who worked with uh, teenagers in trouble. And he talked about, he talked in a very beautiful way about uh, how metta had changed him in terms of his strengthening his ability and really shifting how he worked in the world. He said, I remember sitting in the Berkeley Hills after, after coming back from a retreat that he did in uh, Burma. I could see all of Berkeley, Oakland, and San Francisco. In the past, I had seen myself as a nature lover. Urban settings typically got my mind going in negative directions. <laughs> but this time, I had a different thought looking at this large urban area. Oh my God, so many people to love. Some of you know the Berkeley Hills. You can kind of go up there and see the cars. Oh my God, so many people to love. So many people I can see. In the past, I would usually look at cars and feel bad about pollution. But I thought, I can see individual people going about their lives. It's not abstract. I can really take in millions of people in this view, and I really do wish the best for every single one of them. What I found was that these thoughts didn't, didn't just come and go. Rather, they stayed and grew. I felt energy coming into my mind and body about how to come back to the Bay Area and relate to that many people. To practice metta, for a long time for me was a strong and clear indicator of what the heart's potential is. It changed so many of my views about the world. Previously, I had a huge list about what was bad about humanity. My list of what was good was pretty short. After the retreat, I could more readily see the beauty in people, being very touched by the beauty of watching a father holding his daughter while she slept on public transportation. To be relatively free of aversion for this period of time changed my whole motivation for activism, which previously had been fueled by anger, frustration, and judgment. Metta changed all that.
And as we do the metta more, we may see the way that the lack of metta towards self, as I was mentioning, may be one of the main roots of violence or harm. That people who are feeling a deep pain for all sorts of reasons, many of which are way out of their own control, that they may be, in some ways, acting to cause suffering for others because of their own pain. I remember uh, watching a Bill Moyers program on, um, on youth violence. In fact, it was on teenage murderers. And he interviewed them. And virtually all of them said something like this. I was really, really hurting. And I wanted someone else to feel how bad I felt. You know, that there's a way in which that, that sense of, of violence and harm so often comes out of pain, linked with being, and the pain really, in a way, blinds us to our, our own love of self and our own love of others. It's like when there's pain, we get blinded, don't we? That's what happens in the conflict zones in the world. People get blinded by pain, and it just becomes a cycle. And so somehow bringing, bringing that sense of metta into the world in all sorts of ways, not just in dramatic ways and conflict zones, is something that's so deeply needed right now. That metta can be this powerful way, not just to work with ourselves, but to really work with the world, to really cultivate that sense of, of care, to, to find ways to create the conditions that self-love can develop in others, whether it's in teaching or in working at a community level or in working one-on-one with someone. How can you bring about that, that sense of self-love? How can we bring that quality of metta out into the world? The Buddha said, protecting oneself, one protects others. Protecting others, one protects oneself. In a way, we could say doing metta for oneself protects others. Doing metta for others protects oneself. And I think there's tremendous creativity that's really called for for all of us. In a way, I think that Martin Luther King was right, that we're, in a way, just asking, how can this come into the world in a strong way right now? It's really, really necessary. How can there be more metta that comes in? How can there be more love that really becomes operative? It's like the world is waiting for a new model. And it's waiting for people who can be creative in doing that. And so that's, I like the emphasis that we have on how uh, metta can be so deeply creative in our, in our practice, our individual practice. And I know that in our base groups, uh, we would often, at the end of our sittings, we would do what we called metta out loud. We would do metta for people and situations, just like we do in the Wednesday class that Sylvia was talking about. We bring, we, and it just came out of someone saying, this is a good idea, let's try it. You know, let's do metta. So we say, you know, I want to send metta to uh, Susan, who, who's ill. I want to send metta to Iraq. I want to send metta here or there. I also think of a time when it just really emerged spontaneously 
not even doing formal metta. Uh, I remember when I was helping to uh, guide a Buddhist Peace Fellowship Summer Institute in 1991, and I had just come back from being in the, um, what was then the Soviet Union. And I had done some teaching there and was, had worked there, and I'd come back and had a lot of really close connections with people there. And we did this Buddhist Peace Fellowship Summer Institute right at the time that there was like the attempted coup and they held Gorbachev, some of you may remember this, they held Gorbachev prisoner. And it looked like all the openness of the Soviet Union, which I had seen firsthand, was gonna be turned back. It was very, and, and there were uh, quite a few people in our summer institute, we had about 150 people who were practicing together for six days. And we, um, we spontaneously just did a very short ritual, which is I think a metta ritual, in which we just said, anyone who knows anyone who lives in the Soviet Union, just say their name out of the space of silence. And we did that for about 20 minutes or half an hour. I can even feel my, you know, many people were just crying with just a name. These people are, um, they're in peril and we love them. And that's really the, the energy and spirit, and it's very simple. Metta is very, very simple. It's like that uh, man, that uh, the doctor that Heather talked about who said, Sophie, you look beautiful. Just in that very simple moment, that metta is very, very simple. But it takes a lot of courage. And that brings me to the last, last area I want to talk about. This takes courage. It takes courage to face one's own demons. It takes courage to bring metta out into the world, which is, um, can be rough, you know? And I'm not at all suggesting that we do that when we have our own healing as primary. You know, there's a balance of when we attend to self and when we attend to other and when we do both. But there's a lot of courage necessary. And I, I'm, I'm thinking that um, so far we've had this beautiful emphasis on mindfulness and metta. In a way, we're talking about wisdom and compassion, or we might say wisdom, mindfulness, equanimity on the one hand, and metta, compassion on the other. It's like the the clear seeing on the one hand and the open heart. And that's been a beautiful emphasis and it's really often the traditional way that this whole practice is taught. It's said that the Dharma has two wings. The Dharma is a bird with two wings and it flies by wisdom on one wing and compassion on the other. And this is the essence of what we do. And I learned something uh, a few years ago from a Vietnamese friend named Thich Minh Duc, who's a Vietnamese monk in a Dharma era of Thich Nhat Hanh. He told me that in Vietnam, starting about the 1940s, in the situation which was really challenging there with colonialism and then war and civil war and so forth, they, the Vietnamese Buddhists said, we need to look at things a little bit differently. He said, and they said, we need wisdom, we need compassion, but we want a third pillar of the Dharma. And they said that third pillar is courage. Mm. 
wisdom, compassion, and courage. And I love that. And it's something that it was basically saying, we can have wisdom, we can have compassion. And in a way, it's the clear seeing. I would connect with some of what we've been exploring. It's the clear seeing, it's the open heart, and the courage is the appropriate response. It's the action that we take. And courage is necessary because sometimes, sometimes um, to bring metta into the world is hard. And I was thinking, and I want to kind of finish with um, bringing up an idea which I've been thinking about, which is kind of like, you know, how people talk about tough love. I think there needs to be tough metta. <laughs> <laughs> It's a big topic, although no one's talked much about it. <laughs> um, so I want to just say a few things. Tough, what does tough metta mean? Metta basically means, or tough metta means partly that practicing metta doesn't mean that we simply are nice and we're a pushover. It doesn't mean that we're simply, oh, let me be warm and um, open and so forth. Do what you will with me. I will bring metta towards you. That could be an issue. <laughs> that could be a problem, you know. And so it's, I think, and Sylvia talked about this the first night, that metta is not about passivity. And yet we don't know so much about this, partly because it's a monastic tradition that really gives us the metta practice. How do we bring metta into situations where we need to act, where it's, where it's difficult or dangerous, where we need to tell someone no, or tell someone to stop. How do we do that? How do we do that in the spirit of metta? You know, um, it's a big question. It's a really, there's a lot we could say about it. One thing that I found really important for my own metta practice in this way is that I find it really helpful to connect my metta practice with the body. And I've talked about that a little bit in giving the instructions, but this is my own experience and it may be yours is that I could have, in my own history, I, could, I think I was, had a kind of an open heart that got, could get uh, further developed. I remember, you know, I think it was there as a teenager. I would cry at driver ed movies and, you know. <laughs> you know, I was, I was, um, considered advanced by some of my women friends for crying at movies. So, um, advanced for a man, that is. And anyway, I won't, I won't go there <laughs> at the moment. But I found, so I found that sometimes I could feel my, my heart very, very open. And I would go to situations, and I found myself sometimes getting, feeling knocked around or overwhelmed. I could know my heart was open. And I'd be in a situation and I would be open and something would happen, someone would say something, do something, and I would just get kind of almost like flooded or really have a hard time keeping balance and, and being able to do that appropriate response. And over time I found that grounding in the body was really, really important for me. Grounding and centering in the body, almost like in the martial arts, you know, in, in something like Aikido, which is also really about love. One keeps the attention in the belly and learns how to do that. And I found that as I could ground in the body and keep a kind of a, a bodily center, 
and also keep my heart open, I cease to be able to be knocked around so much. So part of tough metta for me is really connecting metta with the body and with an ability to kind of be connected with the earth and keep a stance. So anything which does that is going to help, help tough metta. You know? And then it's, it's something that really is um, uh, something we can practice in small ways with our, with our challenging people, with our difficult people. We can find ways, not just in the metta meditations, but when, when we're with difficult people in interactions, we can say, this is practice time for tough metta. <laughs> you, know, you know, someone at work, again, reminding ourselves that the tough metta practice doesn't start with the most difficult or even medium-level difficulty, but start with the mildly difficult people for tough metta practice. And so we can really work there. We can see how can I be with this difficult person and bring metta into the situation? How do I need to respond? What do I need to say? Can I set boundaries and so forth? How can I, how can I see that situation as a, a, a chance to learn? How can I be with the difficult situation and say, oh, it's a chance to bring my metta into a challenging situation. So it's really, I really invite you to come to see those challenging situations as opportunities for metta, to stretch yourself, to find ways to bring metta, not just into the safe situations, but increasingly into mildly or moderately challenging situations. So it's really an invitation. I think if we all compare notes, it would be great, because I think we don't really know how to do this so well. And I think it's like this is not this is a community effort really to see how to bring metta into the world. So I want to close with really with um, really with a story and a poem. And this is let me see where I have this. Um, the story is really I think an example of a very advanced level of tough metta. Some of you may know this. It's about, it's by Terry Dobson, and it's about practicing Aikido in Japan. The train clanked and rattled through the suburbs of Tokyo on a drowsy spring afternoon. Our car was comparatively empty, a few housewives with their kids, some old folks going shopping. I gazed absently at the drab houses and dusty hedgerows. At one station, the doors opened, and suddenly the afternoon quiet was shattered by a man bellowing violent, incomprehensible curses. The man staggered into our car. He wore laborer's clothing, and he was big, drunk, and dirty. Screaming, he swung at a woman holding a baby. The blow sent her spinning into the laps of an elderly couple. It was a miracle that the baby was unharmed. Terrified, the couple jumped up and scrambled towards the other end of the car. The laborer aimed a kick at the retreating back of the old woman, but missed as she scuttled to safety. This so enraged the drunk that he grabbed the metal pole in the center of the car and tried to wrench it out of its stanchion. I could see that one of his hands was cut and bleeding. The train lurched ahead, the passengers frozen with fear. I stood up. I was young then, some 20 years ago, and in pretty good shape. I'd been putting in a solid eight hours of Aikido training nearly every day for the past three years. It's a, Aikido is a spiritually grounded 
mindfulness grounded, metta grounded martial art. I had been putting in a solid eight hours of Aikido. I liked to throw and grapple. I thought I was tough. The trouble was my martial art was untested in actual combat. As students of Aikido, we were not allowed to fight. Aikido, my teacher had said again and again, is the art of reconciliation. Whoever has the mind to fight has already broken his connection with the universe. If you try to dominate people, you are already defeated. We study how to resolve conflict, not how to start it. I listened to his words. I tried hard. I even went so far as to cross the street to avoid the chimpira, the pinball punks who lounged around the train station. My forbearance exalted me. I felt both tough and holy. In my heart, however, I wanted an absolutely legitimate opportunity where I might save the innocent by destroying the guilty. <laughs> this is it, I said to myself as I got to my feet. People are in danger. If I don't do something fast, somebody will probably get hurt. Seeing me stand up, the drunk recognized the chance to focus his rage. Aha, he roared. A foreigner. You need a lesson in Japanese manners. I held on lightly as the commuter strap overhead to the commuter strap and gave him a slow look of disgust and dismissal. I planned to take this turkey apart. <laughs> but he had to make the first move. I wanted him mad, so I pursed my lips and blew him an insolent kiss. <laughs> All right, he hollered, you're going to get a lesson. He gathered for a rush at me. <laughs> a split second before he could move, someone shouted, hey, it was ear splitting. I remember the strangely joyous, lulting quality of it as though you and a friend had been searching diligently for something, and he had suddenly stumbled upon it. Hey! I wheeled to my left, the drunk spun to his right. We both stared down at a little old Japanese gentleman. He must have been well into his 70s, but this tiny man, sitting there immaculate in his kimono, he took no notice of me, but beamed delightedly at the laborer as though he had a most important, most welcome secret to share. Come here, the old man said in easy vernacular, banqueting to the drunk. Come here and talk with me, he waved his hand lightly. The big man followed as if on a string. He planted his feet belligerently in front of the old gentleman and roared above the clacking wheels. Why the hell should I talk with you? The drunk now had his back to me. If his elbow moved so much as a millimeter, I'd drop him in his tracks. The old man continued to beam at the laborer. What you been drinking, he asked, his eyes sparkling with interest. I've been drinking sake, the laborer bellowed back, and it's none of your business. Flecks of spittle spattered the old man. Oh, that's wonderful, the old man said, absolutely wonderful. You see, I love sake, too. Every night, me and my wife, uh, she's 76, you know, we warm up a little bottle of sake and take it into the garden, and we sit on an old wooden bench. We watch the sun go down. We look at to see how our persimmon tree is doing. My great-grandmother planted that tree, and we worry. <laughs> we worry about whether it will recover from these ice storms we had last winter. Our tree has done better than I expected, though, <laughs> especially when you consider the poor quality of the soil. <laughs> it is gratifying to watch when we take our sake and go out to enjoy the evening, even when it rains. He looked up at the laborer, eyes twinkling. <laughs> As he struggled to follow the old man's conversation, the drunk's face began to soften. His fists slowly unclenched. Yeah, I love persimmons too. His voice trailed off. Yes, the old man said, smiling, and I'm sure you have a wonderful wife. 
No, replied the laborer, my wife died. Very gently swaying with the motion of the train, the big man began to sob. I don't got no wife, I don't got no home, I don't got no job, I'm so ashamed of myself. Tears rolled down his cheeks, a spasm of despair rippled through his body. Now it was my turn. Standing there in my well-scrubbed youthful innocence, my make-this-world-safe-for-democracy-righteousness, I suddenly felt dirtier than he was. Then the train arrived at my stop. As the doors opened, I heard the old man cluck sympathetically. My, my, he said, that is a difficult predicament indeed. Sit down here and tell me about it. I turned my head for one last look. The laborer was sprawled on the seat, his head in the old man's lap. The old man was softly stroking the filthy, matted hair. As the train pulled away, I sat down on a bench. What I had wanted to do with muscle had been accomplished with kind words. I had just seen Aikido tried in combat, and the essence of, of it was love. I would have to practice the art with an entirely different spirit. It would be a long time before I could speak about the resolution of conflict. Hmm. Maybe I'll actually end there. It's really that spirit of metta, isn't it? You know, that's actually, but it's not, uh, it's that creative. It's like having that moment of metta be there. And that's really what I'm inviting us to both cultivate in ourselves and as we do that, to find ways, creative ways, to, on our own time, to bring it out gradually into the world, which really needs it. It really needs us. And so I invite us to um, be collaborators on doing that. Thank you. So let's just sit for a minute. again for your kind attention. We have uh, 30 minutes of walking. And then the last evening sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.